Welcome to our podcast series, BS on Aerospace and Defense. I'm Pat Hindle, Media Director for Microwave Journal and Signal Integrity Journal. And I'm joined by our other hosts, Brian Goldstein, President, Analog Devices Federal and Vice President of Aerospace and Defense Group at ADI, and Sean Darcy, Director of Aerospace at BAE. And we also have Gary LaRoud, Editor at Microwave Journal with us today. So Sean, why don't you kick us off with this episode? So sure, guys. So hey, one of the questions that we've been getting a lot about is uh, careers and advancement. So today we're going to deviate from our huge defense focus, and we're going to talk a bit about uh, you know some moments and events in our careers and uh, some recommendations and maybe some ideas we can give to our listeners. So um, the four of us have had uh, very different roles and functions, um, and we all probably took slightly different paths to get where we are today. So today I'd like to share with listeners of all stages of both career and life. Uh, you know, some of the lessons we have learned both from our own careers, but also probably more importantly, observing others. Um, also want to take time at the end to congratulate Gary, you know, and thank him for all he's done for the industry and all the lives he's actually impacted. It's been an amazing career. So, so I'd like to start out with something fun, guys. So if you can remember, it's probably been a long time ago for a couple of us. Um, when you were back in high school, did you envision that you would be where you are now? And what did you want to be? So I thought we could start off with something fun. So, um, Gary, you're the guest of honor, so I'll start with you. All right. Well, thank you. Well, in high school, I worked at an FM radio station. It was a very small station. Uh, the owner was also the engineer, and he took me along on his trips to the transmitter. And that's what ignited my interest in uh, RF. At that point, it was 100 megahertz and also audio. So I went to school to become an electrical engineer. And I envisioned that I would become, uh, I don't know, loudspeaker designer, microphone designer. I was focused on low frequencies. And lo and behold, look where I ended up in the gigahertz realm. Well, very good. Pat, what about you? So when I was in high school, I definitely envisioned myself in some kind of scientific career. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in Florida, so naturally some of the things I did in high school were some research for oceanographic uh, research, and I even had a paper published before I got out of high school. So I was going down the science route, but when I got into school, I figured engineering was as close as I could get to that. And I didn't envision I would be out of that, but I definitely had a point in my career where I made a definite shift into marketing. And that I didn't see coming and I didn't expect. I, like you kind of say, I wasn't the best engineer in the world. So I looked for other things that I was good at. And I think marketing was one of them, marketing communications. Well, that's fun. Well, Brian, over to you. <laughs> uh, my story is not as, uh, as not as good as these guys. <laughs> I, was, I was not a good student in high school, especially uh, early on in high school. Had a, it took me a little while to get my act together. And as I did finally get towards the end of high school, I found that I was I was better at math and science than the other things. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I actually sought the guidance of my father and said, um, oh, my father, you know, my father was uh, from a technical background. I said, I don't know what I want to do. He said, well, you're good at math and science and you do seem to care about people a little bit. He goes, I think I can imagine two things. You could either be an engineer or you could be a rabbi. <laughs> so that made the decision easy. That made the decision easy. I, I decided I would go and uh, become an engineer. So that's how it started for me. Well, I'll tell you mine really quick. So uh, actually in high school, I was a jock and I really wanted to be a professional athlete. Um, I learned kind of quick as I started going to like, you know, college 
uh, tryouts and stuff like that. But though I was kind of good at what I was, I was not going to be ever playing pro sports anytime soon. Um, but actually, my, my vocation was I wanted to be an electrician of all things. I was very, very interested in electricity. Um, and uh, it kind of like you, you know, Pat, kind of formulated what I did later on in life. So uh, before we talk about current roles, there's a couple of other things that, you know, in, in talking to some of the folks who have contacted me and talked to me about our, our podcast here, there was a little bit of um, kind of probing questions about what have we done in our career that's ancillary to what we do now that really helped. So I'd like to ask you guys, um, talk briefly about some of the other roles you've had and you how they helped. The ancillary means? Um, so related to. Ah, so, you know, things that would be, you know, what else helped your career? What else did you do? A couple of us have actually, you know, had different roles, right? You know, I, I, and I guess I can kick off real quick is I, I really was not the world's best engineer. I was not a great student either, um, but I came up through the system engineering ranks. But, you know, if you think about it, probably the most influential thing I did is I got into strategic marketing for technology. Um, it was part of a, a Fortune 50 company. And that made a huge difference in what I did, right? And I always like to say, my career has always been broken into a third. It's third in engineering, third in the programs, third in marketing. So that will we'll go in reverse order. Brian, tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, so I'll tell you for me, while my father sent me to school to become an engineer, I honestly, when I got to college, didn't know what an engineer really did for a living. And so when I got to college, actually the world clicked for me. And all of a sudden, I actually did become a very good student. And what changed my world very quickly was my co-ops. I went to Northeastern University in Boston. And after my freshman year, I immediately went to my first co-op experience. I worked for General Electric Ordnance Division out in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And I got to embed myself for the first time with real engineers and real products and real hardware. And that's when I fell in love. I knew that um, touching the hardware, being in the lab, designing new things was something that I really wanted to do. So for me, it was that initial step into a real job and a real role that got me excited. So have you always been in an engineering function? Yeah. So my life began um, as a design engineer and coming out of school, I assumed everybody wanted to be a design engineer. I had no idea all the different opportunities in a company that engineers have from product engineering, test engineering. I knew that there were electrical, mechanical, industrial, but I didn't know that there were product engineers, test engineers, marketing yeah, engineers, yeah. sales engineers. I had no idea. I just assumed everybody wanted to be a design engineer. When I became an electrical engineer, I just assumed I wanted to be a design engineer. And so from the very beginning, I was designing and I was testing and I was building real hardware. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to build real products. I didn't want to do research. I didn't want to do science. I knew very quickly I wanted to make real products, design, solve real world problems. That was important to me from the beginning. But from engineering, I got into engineering leadership. I also enjoyed being accountable. And so I, I was always willing to raise my hand. I was willing to lead others. I was willing to teach others. And so I got into engineering management. To me, that was always the obvious next step as you teach others what you've learned. But it wasn't until farther down the line that they said, hey, would you be interested in getting into some business development? And so I started a relationship with one customer 
that then I started to multiply. I also was on a very big program that went into manufacturing. We ended up building a factory and I ended up staying in the factory. So I've held jobs in engineering as well as manufacturing, as well as business development and then ultimately general management, which is essentially what I do now, which is being responsible for everything. What about you, Pat? So I started off in galley marcinite processing and then I did a lot of product management, uh, project management. And I think that really prepared me. Uh, I was always interested in, you know, new technologies, what other companies were doing. And it really got me interested in the marketing perspective. I took an MBA at night and it kind of just made my career do a 180 kind of, but it prepared me having to understand what product managers really want and getting their products to market, who they want them to, uh, you know, attract them to and how to promote them. And I think that really made me understand what, product managers and marketing managers want. And therefore being on the media side, I think I have a good grasp of what technologies and what educational materials and promotional materials that they need. And so I think that's that connection really worked for me. The thing I love about your job is, is all the things that you describe, but all of your relationships in the industry and how you're able to not only learn for yourself, but you're able to connect dots with all the people you know, you're able to bring other people together, you're able to send people and help uh, connect the dots and uh, introduce people. And that's, that's really a, a big part of your role. Yeah. It's so enjoyable connection and educational. We try to really educate an audience and that's both on technology and business and marketing. And, and that's part of the connections that come about. Very good. Carrie, what about you? Well, in terms of ancillary skills, I don't know exactly why, but certainly from a young age, I enjoyed writing and uh, through uh, obviously, you, you do writing through school, particularly in high school and so forth. I ended up being the editor of our high school newspaper and uh, then launched off into engineering, as I noted. But throughout my career, the ability to be able to write and uh, put ideas together has always been very important, as I'm sure we'll discuss further. And it obviously was a nice uh, entree into the Microwave Journal. Well, fantastic. Now, I, I would totally agree with that. I mean, that's one of the, the key skills is, you know, communication. We will talk about that later, right? And there's various forms of it. Right? And it's really interesting because, um, you know, when you think of engineers, you don't typically think of prolific writers. Right. And when Gary said in high school, I love to write, I yeah. think back and writing was the thing that I least <laughs> like to do. And it's actually something that over my career, I've actually gotten better at but it was never something that I imagined as an engineer. When I would say, my father said, yeah. be an engineer, I go, okay, I don't have to write, I don't have to read, I don't have to study. You know, I, I can say science, and I can say technical, <laughs> but then I'm getting into business and then I'm getting into HR issues and I'm getting into people management and all of a sudden, um, it's more than just being good at math and science yeah. along the way. No, very, very true. So. So we, we talked about other roles, our previous roles, um, you know, kind of quickly. What was, do you think, the key one or two things to getting you into the role you have now? And, and basically think about answering this from uh, a person is the midpoint in their career. So Pat, start with you. Well, definitely a big turning point in my career was the point where I, I had always done product and project management other than the process engineering I did in the first five years. And I went to Maycom as a product line manager, and I never worked one day in that role. 
On the first day I got there, they said, you know, you have some website experience. I was doing websites on the side, which actually back in those days, 2000 was pretty rare. If you had a couple years experience in websites, you're you an were expert. like, <laughs> you're yeah. an expert. So they you said, Google. we really, you know, we have some products for you, but not right now. Why don't you go help marketing communications over at corporate? They're going to build a new website. I said, oh, that sounds really interesting. I'll check it out. And I just stayed in marketing communications for eight years at Maycom. And I just slowly expanded from website and e-business out into, you know, running the whole Marcom for the defense and commercial groups, which was about 600 million at that time. So it was, it was a great educational career and it shift. And I was able to just kind of expand slowly. I was in the right place at the right time was kind of the gist of it. Yeah. We, we probably would have to admit for most of us, that was uh, more important. <laughs> Definitely timing and luck have something to do with it. But when someone presents you with an opportunity, you have to make sure you take it. No, Because I could have said no, but I took it. And, you know, you ha- can't be afraid to take that leap if it's something that you feel is going to benefit you down the road or something you're passionate about. Brian, what about you? The defining point for me in my career was after I had come to Hittite Microwave as a role was basically a lead engineer was to help develop this RF microwave integrated module business. And when I came, we, we got this very large program, which I was the lead engineer. And this program was new capability. It was new size and scale that we actually had to build a new factory around it. So taking this product from design into manufacturing, I moved into manufacturing with that role and built a technician team and built a production engineering team, built an assembly and test team. And so that really gave me a well-rounded, not just a design engineer anymore, but learning the life on the manufacturing side, that really changed my life. Because when you take that product and you live the life of the people that manufacture it, and then you go back to engineering with that experience, you really, come back with something that really changes how you look at things. And so that role changed the way I looked at things in general about people and projects and responsibility very, very differently. Now, that's good insight. And I actually had something similar that had the same thing as well. I got to run a factory for a while and learned the challenge, right? One of the things that I learned is the best engineering design is no good if you can't build it. And as simple as that sounds, it took me actually working and running a factory to understand that. So, Gary, what about you? So my first, uh, I would say, in quotes, real job that launched me into an RF microwave career was at TI. And I was involved in some of the early uh, gallium arsenide mimic development work there. TI had a long history. This was the defense part of the company. It had a long history a vision going back into the 60s to do phased array radar. And obviously a gas mimic was a key component of that. So most of the technology or virtually all of the technology development was really focused on either the phased array radar or a phased array system for electronic warfare. And along about 1985, Jerry Junkins, who was the CEO of TI, was looking for ways to grow the company. And he basically said, what technologies do we have that we're incubating that should be exposed to the broader world and not just kept as an internal technology? So gallium arsenide mimics was one area that was identified as having potential. And uh, I and a couple other folks basically were targeted with uh, putting together a business plan for launching this venture. 
and all the other folks in the organization, I say all, virtually all of them, were very skeptical about uh, was there a market for gas mimics and uh, why were we depleting our resources away from the, the core business that TI was involved in. And it was a decision I had to make, but there was no question that it was a direction I wanted to go in. And it really opened the door for me. I started out once the business was defined as engineering manager, and then I got into uh, to business development or marketing. In those early days, um, it was an engineering cell and a program manager cell. You had to convince them first that the performance yeah. was there, and then secondly, that you had a reliable device that wasn't going to cause the program manager's system to fail. So I found myself very quickly on the road talking to engineers and program managers about this technology, and that ignited my interest in marketing and business development. And as they say, the rest is history. Yeah, oh, fantastic. So. Well, guys, hey, let's shift away from our, our own careers for a bit, maybe discuss some things we've seen in others and, and maybe some other uh, learning that we've gotten from developing and leading others as well. So so first, I guess one of the questions, we hear a lot about the word mentoring, and I'd like to get your guys' thoughts on that. You know, how important is it to get a mentor? That's the first question. But the other one, is it more important to have a good mentor or a good boss? So, Brian, I'll start with you. So one of your favorites. This, so. is, this <laughs> is absolutely one of my favorite topics. And so uh, mentorship is incredibly important. And it's just like everything else. My vision of mentorship has changed over over the years. I believe that if I was going to get a mentor or be a mentor, it should be someone who was like me. It should be someone who does what I do at an expert level that I can pick their brain, that understands my problems and can make my life easier because they've lived my problems. And I always assumed it was someone who had the next role above me. And that is absolutely not the case. You should have lots of mentors in your life and you should be mentors to lots of different people. I have been mentors to people within my organization who are very, very senior all the way down to new college grads. They all have different perspectives and different sets of issues, but they all have the same goal in mind of who do I work for? Why do I enjoy working here? Do I enjoy the people that I work with? Do I have a vision for where I'm going in my career? Does my company care about me? Are they moving me forward in my career? Am I being paid fairly? And am I getting the opportunities to grow as an individual? That's what everybody wants at a core. And it doesn't matter if you're an engineer, doesn't matter if you're a technician, you're a salesperson, it doesn't matter if you work in the manufacturing. Those are the key aspects. And so I mentor people um, from all different walks of life across the company. And so I get a lot out of it because I get a lot of, and I'm getting older, so I get the, the young people's perspective, but I also get perspectives from all over the company and I get to help connect the dots. And so I get a lot out of that. Um, as far as mentorship for myself, again, I've learned I thought it should be my boss. The boss is, is an interesting, mm -hmm. but the boss is, is, is also someone who's not going to be with you forever, right? Bosses come and go. You move around in your career. Your boss gets opportunities. They move around in their career. So while your boss is important as a mentor, they should not be the be-all and end-all. And people do assume that their boss is a mentor, is that person that's going to control their destiny. 
And that's something as I've grown in my career, I have to tell people just because you either love your boss or you don't like your boss, you need to be independent on your own with your own set of goals, your own set of vision for yourself, because those people are going to come and go. Now, a mentor is now someone who you've personally chosen, not that's been handed down by an org chart. You've now approached somebody. It could be somebody you know very well. It could be someone that you like the cut of their jib as they work, walk down the hallway, and you approach someone who maybe you don't know. And and But the key is when you choose a mentor and you approach a mentor is you have to have a vision of what you want from that mentor. You will find 90% of the people will say yes if you ask to speak to them, but you'll need to come to them with your own vision of what you want out of the relationship, and you should be able to articulate that. So I'll stop there, but it's, a, it's an important topic that I don't think enough people realize, and I think they're afraid to reach out and take advantage of on their own because it, the best mentors are people that you may not even know personally, but it's okay to introduce yourself. That's very good, actually. So, Pat, what about what's any other thoughts on that? Um, I definitely think that not enough companies do encourage it enough. Like Brian says, the companies that do are usually the excellent companies. Um, it is a critical thing. And I did think it was always like someone who was a couple of levels above me. I would pick them out. And that's what I kind of did for the first decade. But then after that, I kind of learned that it's not like Brian says, you need to seek out people in different areas who have different perspectives. And your boss is never going to be the appropriate person anyways. They're not going to share with you, are you at the right salary level or other things like that. They may or may not be totally honest. In that area. So it's definitely good to reach you know, outside. It could be outside your department, your expertise, find people with experience and you know, just bounce questions off of them and you know, get a perspective that you may not have come across before. So I agree with a lot of what Brian said. So Gary, what's your thoughts? In my experience, I have not had a lot of mentors. Most of the mentoring I've received in my career has come from supportive bosses. Um, I do think I would have benefited greatly when I left Maycom and went to Triquint had I had a mentor, because I think I was in an um, interesting political situation in the company that someone who had been there a while and had a, a good view of the landscape and wasn't in my direct chain of command could have provided some guidance for me that would have made me more successful. So that's one thought. The other thing I think that's important that I've observed across all the companies I've worked with, except for Microwave Journal, uh, because of, I think, the small nature of our team at Microwave Journal, is over the course of a few years at a company, people develop uh, perceptions. And sometimes those perceptions can be limiting based on can they meet their financial commitments? Can they bring a program in on schedule? And oftentimes, I, th I don't think the organization is honest with them about their potential. And they may ask the question about a promotion or something related to that, and they're sort of given talking points, but not really told, you've kind of hit the wall here. And I think a mentor who watches what's going on can suggest to that person, it may be time to look for a different position, either within the company or at another company, because whether it's true or not, your perception is limiting you. Yeah, and finding that person who you have a trusting relationship who will be open and honest with you 
it's a gift. Mm -hmm. You know, when you ask somebody for feedback, including your boss, and they won't give you any constructive criticism because they think they're doing you a favor by being nice. Mm -hmm. These are not the people, they are not helping you, mm -hmm. right? So it takes a lot of trust between two people to give constructive criticism and have it be taken the right way. And so I spend a lot of time with my team and others explaining why constructive criticism is important and why it really is a gift and mm -hmm. that it comes from a place of caring yeah. as opposed to a place of criticism. And that's a hard, that's a hard lesson and a hard tool and a hard weapon to develop in your arsenal. And especially of engineers, we have a reputation of being analytical and maybe cold, which isn't fair, but it's important that at least the leaders of people develop that ability and candor and caring mm -hmm. to be able to be forthright and clear about behaviors that need to be and can be improved upon. No, that's very true. I mean, even from my own you know, experience, honesty is the number one thing when you find a mentor, right? I mean, um, something else I think it, you guys kind of alluded to, but I'd like to touch on is mentoring can be a very two-way street. Um, I've mentored a lot of people who I've learned from, um, you know, and it doesn't mean it has to be a subordinate versus superior relationship, right? I guess the other thing to it I'd like to add is one of the, the, some of the best experiences I've had as far as mentors is they've been outside of the discipline, right? I've, I've had mentors who are in finance. I've had mentors in M&A, acquisition, strategy. Those actually were some of the more valuable ones because I got to see a really different way of thinking, way of analyzing, a different way of leading. So thank you guys. Um, so let me move on to a probably one of the, the tough question, and this is difficult probably both for employees and even corporate leadership, right? And this is the people manager versus the individual contributor. And so, you know, one of the questions is, can someone have a great career as an individual contributor? And maybe another thing we wanna talk about is do we just not value that high, highly enough, right? Um, you know, the other thing maybe, uh, you know, is to, to ask you guys about, you know, how do you boost the, the image or the visibility of that? How do we reward people who are excellent, excellent, either design engineers, scientists, senior fellows, et cetera. So, Gary, what's some of your thoughts there? Well, I think the answer to that question depends on the company. Uh, at TI, there was a technical a ladder, a technical ranking that you could go up, fellow, senior fellow, and so forth. And at least the claim was that um, at the highest levels, you were basically the equivalent of a, a business president or so forth. And you had commensurate skills or impact in the sense that you were helping drive the technology roadmap for the company. At Maycom, there was a similar structure where uh, technical people were valued. Someone that wanted to stay on the technical ladder and not go into management or project management in whatever form it might be were uh, to be compensated and respected the same way. I think um, on paper, those systems are good. I think, again, it's a matter of the execution and is the, the top management committed to support it. 
at the end of the day, unfortunately, I think the um, when you get to the level of looking at the impact of a company and how it's judged, particularly a public company with stock price and so forth and uh, earnings every quarter, I think the technical discipline is always going to be at a disadvantage because it will be harder for the top software designer at Facebook, for example, to compete with someone that can show how many subscribers they've gotten in the last quarter and what that does to the stock price. So I think there is a limit to it, but I think it's, a, it's something, having said that, that companies should offer their employees. So Pat, what do you think? Absolutely. They're both just as important. I, I think all the organizations I've worked in have actually had a technical tracks, uh, individual contributor, you know, the senior fellow type of track that well, a lot of people see. I worked in a couple of researcher organizations that actually value the technical people more than the business people because they were pretty much pure research. So Raytheon Research Division, as it was back in the day, was like that. And I worked, I went to MIT and worked there on some NASA missions and the same thing. It was actually, you know, emphasized more than it was the uh, business sense or applications type of job. So I've seen that it is, uh, you know, a, a track that is available to most people and is just as important. But then, you know, people who are good at managing people and doing business development are just as valuable. It's all, it all has to work together. No, that's true. I mean, there's the, the joke about you take an excellent engineer and make him a terrible manager, right? Or a terrible leader. So, so I wanna, I wanna add one, one little question to the, the, the thought here um, for Brian to talk about is, so what do you do though, when it's maybe somebody that's actually very happy with where they are presently? They're an excellent individual contributor. They're your solid three guy right in the middle of the scale. What do you what do you do as a senior leader for somebody like that? Yeah, it's a it's a this is a really good topic, and and I agree with what both uh, Gary and Pat said um, about the two tracks. Um, now you get the folks who have moved along in their career, and 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 the other thing was when I started in college, I thought everybody wanted to be the CEO. <laughs> Clearly, everybody's fighting to get to the to that leadership role. Yeah, and and what I've learned over the is it's absolutely not true. Right, there are people that want to come to work. They want to stay technical. They want to be alone. They want to be an individual contributor. You got others that want to lead people. There are other people that want to be in charge. So you've got all sorts of different people. You've got people that will always leap out to the front. You have people that will always raise their hand and want to be that person who stands up and represents others. And then you've got those other people that are happy to be in the background, more comfortable being in the background, but you absolutely need those people. Mm -hmm. So you have to continue to reward those people. You start by rewarding them with good work, right? You continue to reward them with recognition and that recognition in most cases, people, money is absolutely the first thing we think of in terms of recognition. But to be honest, if you look at people, that's actually fairly low, especially as you move up and along in your career, money becomes a bit less important as you start to make more money. It becomes more about being validated and valued and understanding that people understand the success of the company is tied to your success as that individual. And so we have to absolutely go out of our way to recognize those people and to reward those people and to thank those people because that is, that's your 50, 60% of your organization. Just to touch on one of the other points, we were talking about technical versus business track. 
But even in leadership as an engineer, I want to want people to understand there's a difference between people leader and project leader. Mm-hmm. And most people think that they're and most engineers anyway think that they're one and the same. That the project leader should be the smartest engineer, the most driven engineer, most organized engineer can make decisions, can get things done, can rally people around. But they may be terrible at giving positive feedback and negative feedback and personal feedback and constructive feedback. They may be terrible about figuring out how to give raises and how to hire and how to um, reward and how to give uh, constructive feedback. And that's a different skill set than being the leader of a project. And so I spend a lot of time talking with engineers that when you take a leadership of people role, you need to understand the whole job description. Just because you're my ace number one engineer alpha doesn't mean you're my most caring uh, leader of people and selfless and going to help build other careers. But if you take that job and you understand the job description and you're not doing that people stuff, you went from an A player, all of a sudden you're a C player because you've taken a different role. And so your grade can change. And so it's very important. We as employers, we write a proper job description of a people manager versus a project manager. And we explain that to the people taking the role so that they understand it clearly. Yeah, that's very, very important. So one of the things that, uh, you know, we talked about a little bit earlier and we touched on is almost every development plan any of us have ever seen or written talks about communications. And in all fairness, not every high potential person needs to be a really good communicator. And all of us probably have seen there's very there's different styles of communication, everything from how you convince somebody to go with the design, how you teach, how you convince somebody to go with a marketing plan can be very, very different. So. I'd like to hear a little bit from each one of you of how important are communication skills, right? But more importantly, how did you develop them? How do you manage them? How do you develop those in others? So, Gary, I'd like to start with you. You said a lot about writing, and I'd like to hear some more of your thoughts on that. Sure. So, as you noted, there are different uh, ways to communicate. Uh, Writing is one way, maybe not as uh, prevalent today as uh, in, in some jobs. Uh, I think presentations, making presentations might be uh, something that we do more of these days, particularly with PowerPoint. Uh, As it became the standard, we all learned how to uh, create PowerPoint charts. And I think creating a succinct message is really important. I think also having um, what I'll call an elevator speech that you can give to your boss, your boss's boss, someone that you're working with. Uh, I remember at TI going down the hall and the uh, two levels above me, I'd occasionally run into the vice president of the division and he'd say, hey Gary, what's going on? And I'd probably have 30 seconds and I always felt really put on the spot. How can I say what I'm doing positively in 30 seconds so that when he he leaves the conversation, it's like, oh yeah, things are under control and Gary's a good guy. So I think <laughs> communication skills are, are very important. It's a little bit situational what uh, channel you use, but uh, it's really key. And particularly if you're involved in any type of a conflict, part of my career, uh, TI and Westinghouse, 
were working together on architecting the phased array radar. And there were some pretty knockdown, uh, drag out fights between people about the right architecture. And I would sit in a room listening to systems engineers basically tear each other's ideas apart. And uh, ultimately, the VP had to make the decision of what approach was being taken. But if you can, if you can succinctly and well describe the benefits of your approach, I, I think that goes a long way. No, that's excellent. That's good insight. So, uh, Pat, what about you? So, I think what Gary said is great, and I think to add to that is there's a couple things. One is that you're passionate about your job, you're passionate about the project or the design. I think it's very important. If you have passion for what you're doing, you know, then you're able to communicate it better to people. You're really more excited about it. You're more positive about it. And if you're not passionate about what you're doing, you probably should look for something that you're passionate about to be doing in the long term, um, because that makes the job rewarding and it makes you good at communicating this, the things that are good about that product or your job or whatever. Um, and the other is, you know, I think practicing things on presentation skills are key. You really do need to do that. And networking is important too. I think that's part of communicating is you should always be networking with people. I did not know that for a decade of my first part of my career. I never networked with anybody. I just did my job and I didn't think it was an important thing. And then I just learned that it's such a key thing to do is to communicate with people and find people with different skills and different thoughts and be able to you know, communicate with them on a regular basis so you build a relationship. So I think those are other parts of the communication skills that are very important. So I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull a fast one on Brian again and slightly change the question. I always question. get it. Well, let's fight BS, you know. Um, so as you've gone up, your you know your career, you're a vice president now. How has your needs and requirements to communicate changed? Maybe within the last five six years. Yeah, it's it, it's changed a lot. You get to a point in your career where you're starting to communicate with people that don't know as much about your topic as you do. Mm -hmm. And so you, you have to start to really understand the audience that you're talking to. If I'm talking to my organization, I can talk to them at a different level and a different level of detail because they understand the topic so much better than people who are outside the organization. But when I am reporting sideways or up, I have to understand what is it that they want out of the, what is it that they're trying to get out of the conversation? And it's probably not all the minutia. They want big picture. They want bullets of what it is that they need to know, especially at the CEO level where he's got 25,000 employees. He might have 10 business units. He cannot know everything about everything. He needs to know the big topics and the big issues and so understanding your audience and I will, it's something that you can learn and you absolutely have to practice. So as a young person, you come in, you can do things like a lot of companies have Toastmasters clubs, mm -hmm. you know, so you can be joining things like that where you learn to write, you learn to present, you learn to present off the cuff, you learn to limit your time, you learn how to look people in the eye and be engaging. And then you learn to do the presentations as well. When I talk to people, again, I bring people, I give them, a, I give them an opportunity in my organization to make friendly, friendly audiences. So I'll bring young people across the organization into my staff meeting 
to present on a topic. And the biggest thing we talk about is one, you've got 30 minutes, leave 15 for questions. And two, we have no idea what you're talking about. Assume you're talking to your grandparents who have no idea what you're talking about because I will not understand the minutia. But meanwhile, most people want to get into the minutia. So over time, you realize that the people, you start to realize that the people don't have as much time as you wish they had, and they don't understand the topic as well. And so you learn to talk in sound bites and really become concise with your message. And as you guys all heard, Brian's watch did not like how concise he was. (laughs) All right, guys. So I think we've got, uh, we've touched on some really important topics and I hope we've shared some very, very good information people who are listening. So let's uh, kind of close up with a couple other questions. So, and I'm gonna just go around the room on this one here. So let's start with Gary. Um, So what are your thoughts on education? You know, after a bachelor's degree, where do you see advanced degrees helping the most? And what discipline do you think the most applicability is? I think for someone that wants to be technical or maybe they haven't decided that they don't want to be technical, that Typically going at least at the master's level is important. I think between master's and PhD, PhD you really should uh, either want to teach or want to be a very detailed technical person in the area that you're, you're going to study. That would be my sense. No, I totally agree with that. I think that's good insight. The question that, just to jump on that real quick, the question that I get a lot is from the engineers that want to go into business is, do I need an MBA? Well, that's my next question, All which right, I'm then. throwing over to Pat. All right, perfect. <laughs> so, Pat, um, as people move into senior leadership, do you think they need an advanced degree specifically? Maybe like Brian said, an MBA? They don't need one. Um, I do think an MBA is helpful. I took it one at night. Uh, there's a lot of ways to do it while you're working, which is Northeastern had a great you know, night program. I don't think it's required. It's it's something that you can learn about. I do think it does give you a little leg up, but it's not what it used to be. I mean, in my day, everyone's like, oh, you have to get an MBA. You don't have to anymore. I don't know. I don't believe you have to, but I do believe that it helps speed up the process. You will pick up all the information through osmosis over time, but I think it does help um, bring some book, some book learning definitely speeds up the learning process. So, Brian, for you, one of the things I wanted to ask about is we had a couple questions a while back about professional business coaches. So, Brian, I want to ask you about have you ever used professional career coach? And if so, what's your thoughts? Do you think it's something you'd recommend to others or? Uh, it's very interesting. So I, I was lucky enough to be sent to an executive uh, training program just before I became a VP. And it was the first time I had been to business training uh, and leadership training courses, but this was different in that it actually set me up with a personal coach, and I had never had that before. And I was a little bit, a um, little bit nervous about it. You know, this person doesn't know me. How could they possibly help me? Um, so I met my person. They had I had a 360 review done from my peers, from my people that report to me, and from above me <clears throat> that went to the coach actually before the information came to me. So when I got to the coach, he had already read the information and had some thoughts about me. This coach that I had was, he was a professional executive coach. He was a minister and he was also a uh, psychologist. 
And by the way, the session turned into all of that. <laughs> you know, while it started off talking about me and it talked about my professional and the feedback that I had gotten from all of my peers and my boss, and we got real deep on what that meant and how I thought about it, it became very personal as well because as you move up in your career, a lot of us, your, your life at work becomes part of your overall life. Mm -hmm. And for me in particular, uh, that was absolutely true. I see my work family as a big part of my life as my home family because I actually spend just as much time at work as I do at home. And so learning a lot about myself and learning about how I communicate, how others communicate and that it's not all the same and being able to get that um, empathy and being able to see the world through other people's eyes, not just my own eyes, was the biggest thing that this coach did for me. Um, it started off being very technical about work and very specific about different things. And although he didn't know anything about our industry, just like I said with the mentoring, my problems are the same as every other executive problem, no matter what industry you're in. Mm -hmm. And so he was able to relate to me very quickly and it became very personal. It became a lot of the problems you have at work with coworkers are the same problems you have at home with your wife and your kids. And so you learn how to communicate with people at all different levels with all different, all different personalities. And um, so the minister piece, as well as the psychologist piece, as well as the uh, business coach, they all came to play in making me a complete leader. Good, good, good. Well, I tell you what, guys, let's close out with one last round the room here. So uh, a couple of us who are on the uh, the call here are from the New England area. And I think we saw one of our local sports teams uh, complete what was possibly the silliest and worst play and uh, possibly the history of the sport. Um, but the reason I bring that up is a lot of times, guys, we're really nervous about talking about our failures and uh, also about what we did to mitigate them and recover for them going forward. So and so I'd like to, to conclude our talk today with each of us maybe sharing one time that we really did whiff and then what we did not so much to recover and not so much what we learned, but why we learned from it. And I hope that helps everybody else who's listening. So. Pat, why don't you go first? Yeah, come to me last because I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to think of anything. Yeah, that, that is a tough so question. Well, just, 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 well, one. You mean just one or, yeah. do you, you know? <laughs> Lots of failures, but uh, I tried to forget them all. So That's right. It's hard yes. to remember. <laughs> I just delete all those. <laughs> well, you think, guys, I'll actually, I, I haven't, I, I'll tell you the one that, one of the ones that my career, guys, that actually, it really hit hard, and it was something that many, many years ago, I had to brief a very senior military set of people. I had a month to prepare. I had a whole month to prepare. Um, and it wasn't that this is not negative, that I trusted the people above me, um, but I never, ever followed up since I, before I got the assignment to make sure I was going to brief the right thing. So I walked in into a room with people with stars all over their shoulders and things like that, and I gave the wrong briefing. Um, and I got pretty much eviscerated for it, um, got dressed down pretty bad for it, but I managed to recover. I had a, it made me, uh, drove me to have a very honest conversation with the leadership. Um, but also, you know, like we talked about mentoring, it was a lot of honesty with back with me about why did I ever not follow up? So one of the things I, I learned from it, right, is to make sure, and it's almost a phobia I have, right? Like coming here to meet with you guys, I check the clock, I recheck the calendar, I make sure I've got the right agenda. 
but it made me learn not to make assumptions. And uh, thankfully, I've never repeated that mistake twice. So I think mine was back in the Skyworks Alpha Industries in those days. Uh, I was quality manager. And it was when ISO 9000 had just come out. So we were trying to get ISO certified. And, you know, I was in charge of trying to get all these procedures from all these different departments. And I really never, you know, communicated with each department and motivated them to do it. So I was ended up writing these myself. So I'm writing them for all the departments myself. And I can't do that. I'm like, you know, doing it at the end of the day. So I'm only doing one a day if I'm lucky. And I just really, I, I ended up probably, you know, getting laid off. That was a good reason I was laid off probably. It just didn't. I wasn't successful in getting them certified as fast as they wanted to be certified. It's not that I wasn't doing the job. It just wasn't at the pace that they expected. And I didn't understand that, you know, enough right. to be able to combat it. And so I think I uh, moved on. <laughs> so, Ryan, we'll let you have a short one. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I will say just in general, I will find the biggest problems that I encounter in my career is when I do not take enough time to work on the assignment. And I and if it requires other people to be with me, it's when I do not take enough time to communicate with the others well enough. So I'll leave it as a generic. Yeah. The generic thing is do not procrastinate. Take the time, especially on something important, to do your work well. If it's a presentation, make sure that you practice. Um, make sure that you do a dry run and you think about all the questions that can be asked of you when you go into that presentation. So just overall, the biggest problems I have is when I'm not as well prepared as I should be and the team's not as well as prepared as they should be. And so what do you do when that happens? You recognize that that wasn't as good as it could have been. And you come back and you say, what are we going to do about this next time? No, good, you good. Move on. There is nothing, there is no problem that you can create that isn't better 24 hours after it happens and you get some time to think about it and put together <laughs> a plan of, of how you're going to do better next time. Yeah, so true. So Gary, I'll let you close this one out. So I alluded earlier to the fact that I feel like I would have done better at Triquent had I had a mentor. And the reason, kind of the backstory behind that is um, growing up at TI and Maycom, I think the cultures of both companies and maybe in some sense at TI because of the development work that was going on, people tended to be measured by best effort. Were you putting in the energy and were you making progress and that sort of thing? And I found myself at Triquent at one point where, I mean, I was working crazy hours lots of plane flights, just um, hardly ever being home to see my family. Uh, people were distributed around the country. And uh, one day, surprising to me, my, my boss called me in and basically said, we've judged you're not uh, being as effective as we want, and uh, we're going to replace you in your position, and you have maybe six months to decide what you want to do. You can leave the company. There might be another job here for you, uh, but it's your choice, you know, and we've made this decision and there's there's no arguing it. So as you might imagine, I walked out of that uh, meeting fairly shell-shocked and then had to uh, work through the process of what am I going to do? 
and I decided to uh, stay with the company and um, found myself in a difficult position uh, at one point where I was actually transitioning my replacement into the role, rotated into uh, a part-time, more strategic role, which I think was a better fit for my skill set. But nonetheless, that was a very humbling experience. And then within, oh, a few months, part of the, the bigger play that was going on in the company, the business unit that I was in was merged with another business unit. And in effect, I was offered uh, a full-time strategic role in that business unit. So I felt like I had been vindicated at some level uh, by the company and had made the right decision to stay rather than looking for another job. But that uh, caused, as you might imagine, a number of 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. Uh, soul sessions. <laughs> no, I can imagine. Well, thank but, you for sharing that. Well, thank you, guys. Well, I think this comes to a, a close for our discussion and our BS on Aerospace for this episode. But I, before we sign off, finally, I'd like to uh, just spend a couple of minutes to thank Gary for everything he's done for our industry over the years. It's been really great knowing you. It's been really great working with you. You know, I love the, the fact you call yourself uh, a midwife at the birth of the gas mimic industry. I thought that was a great thing. Um, any parting thoughts on retirement or guidance for the industry you'd want to leave us with? Uh, well, it's a difficult decision. Uh, as I've told Pat and others, uh, obviously in all the roles that we have, they're, they're very demanding, uh, dealing with new technology and uh, just the variety of things we do. Things are not like uh, airplanes that run on hopefully consistent schedules and arrive early. So you're always uh, finding yourself uh, challenged by more things to do in limited amount of time. I think we've all seen budget pressures. And so uh, when I started, most middle managers had a secretary, and I don't know that any company has a secretary other than the CEO, if you will. Um, so it's it's been challenging. And at some point I felt here in the last year that I just wanted more time in my days. I wanted some time to be able to explore some other interests that I have. And it wasn't that I was dissatisfied with anything I was doing at Microwave Journal or the industry. It's just uh, I, I couldn't see a way to uh, invest time in other areas without stepping back. So that ultimately led to my decision to uh, step away from the uh, full-time editor role at Microwave Journal. But it's been a, a wonderful career. Um, as I noted at the beginning, I didn't envision at the start that I'd end up this way and the, have the career path that I had, but I have absolutely no regrets. It's been fabulous. Congratulations. Well, congratulations. And again, all our best in retirement. Congratulations yes. on an amazing career and please keep in touch. Will do. Thank you guys. Okay. Thanks everybody for listening and keep your eye out for our next one in about a month from now. You can find more podcasts at podcast.microwavejournal.com. Thanks for listening.